Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program on 101.9 Chai FM. My guest today is Harris Svee Green, and we can see each other on Zoom. We have spoken to each other, but at last we can see each other. Uh, welcome, Harris. I'm just going to dedicate this program first before we start our program. I'd like to dedicate this program to Mike Damlin, a beloved lifelong friend whose yacht site is today. Um, and we would also like to dedicate it to all the hostages still held for 123 days. It's just unbelievable if you think of that amount of time. And of course, we would like to also dedicate it to the IDF who are fighting to save Israel and the diaspora Jews in this existential crisis that we Jews are facing. And as we always say, it starts, what starts with the Jews does not end with the Jews. Now, let me introduce Harris for you. Harris V. Green was born in Cape Town, South Africa, and he went to the Weinberg High School where he told me that 15 to 20 percent of the students in his class were Jewish then. He made Aliyah 53 years ago, is that right? Correct, yes. yes. He's an accountant by profession and he served as a chief financial officer for a number of Israel-based high-tech companies. He's married to Phyllis and they have three married children, 13 grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. He's also a founder of Truth Be Told, an organization engaged in public diplomacy on behalf of Israel. He also writes a blog. I've been following him for ages. I didn't realize it since the war started um, in October. I've been following Harris. and. Um, Peter Bailey suggested that we meet each other. Thank you, Peter, for doing so. And only when I started going onto the blog did I realize, oh my gosh, I've been following Harris for, for months now. His blog is on the uh, Times of Israel, and uh, it's incredibly important, especially for diaspora Jews. You know, um, Harris, I came across this little saying, and I thought, how true, because your blogs often hit a nerve, you know, and you, you, you have to rethink about it again. And this said, truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. Does That's that, correct. Yeah, yeah it is yeah. correct. How are you today? I'm really doing well, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure for me to be with you, and uh, I look forward to, uh, to our chat. Um, um, is there anyone else you would like to dedicate this program to? Well, the people I'd like to dedicate it to most is, is my, my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. Uh, and of course, to my wife as well, because uh, we've had a pretty trying time the past few months. Mm. And um, so, and you know, but my story or, you know, what you'll hear today isn't, isn't any different. We're not unique. Every family in Israel has gone through a similar 
process and um, you know let's hope that uh, it's going to make us stronger and that we've got something positive to look forward to. Now Harris if you've been in Israel for 53 years you have gone through many wars many intifadas terrorist attacks the Israeli psyche seems to be incredibly resilient resilient when I you know, when I, whatever I read, I, I think to myself, good heavens, I wonder how, how I would cope in that situation. Do you feel in these 53 years that you and your family have built up this resilience? Uh, yes, I think we have. It, it's amazing actually what time has done to that because um, when I made Aliyah 53 years ago, we were a young married couple and uh, you know you start out at the time and you sort of take everything in your stride and you overlook things and i remember when i went into the army and then afterwards when i i served in the first lebanese war in 1982 and um i didn't i didn't really feel all that much concern for myself and for what was going on around me uh the, the, my son where he went into the army uh, a He's three years old, about 10 years okay. after that in the, in the late and early 90s. And again, we had, uh, you know, we experienced a similar thing. But now as, uh, as a much older person and as a senior member in the family, it's, uh, you see it in a completely different perspective. And I think uh, being older, we are also expected to be so much wiser and to be there in s- strong, no matter what's going on around us. And it's not always easy, is it? No, it's not, it's not easy at all. In fact, uh, we had an incident where uh, around two weeks into the war, um, we were at my daughter's place on a Friday night for Shabbat dinner. And uh, my grandsons and my grandsons-in-law were all, uh, were all in the army. And uh, all of a sudden, in the middle of the meal, the telephone rang. And uh, we are Shabbat observant, so normally, you know, we don't we don't go to the telephone. But we answered the telephone, and we we got news that uh, my granddaughter's husband had been injured. And you know, it comes to you as such a shock. And at the same time, I look at myself and I thought, you know, I'm the oldest person. Yeah, I need to to be an example. I need to create an atmosphere of calm. And I found it. You know, so difficult. But what gave me so much pleasure and gratification was to see the way that my children took took the situation in hand and and you know knew how to deal with it. Mm. Is that your? Uh, was that Ariel who was injured? That was Ariel that was injured. Mm. Yes, I read that blog. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on one hundred one point nine High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back on air uh, on the Finding Human program and my guest today is Harris B. Green. We'd love to hear from you if anyone would like to send any messages in. A message did come through yesterday um, actually Harris and it said as a grandparent what do you think the best way to tell your grandchildren what is the best way to tell your grandchildren about what is happening in our world today as Jews? 
I think it's. I think that's a tall order. Um, the main difficulty, I think, is is. I think in Israel it's one thing, and uh, you know because the children here are exposed to this. They see their parents going, their friends' parents going, and everybody else being, you know, being mobilized. Uh, and I think it, it's very important for for them. They understand what's going on around them. So I think you know explaining everything to them is one thing. I think for people in the diaspora it's a little more complicated because on the one hand i think they miss all the buzz going on around them on the one hand and on the other hand it's 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 not you know people need to be to know who they are they need to understand that they have a community responsibility and i think in in passing on the message of what it is to be a part of the jewish people is something which is intergenerational mm -hmm. and it does need to be passed on so you know the the and I think it's a lot more difficult outside of Israel than it is inside Israel to do that. Why did you decide to start the blog? Um, well, you'll start your your part of the blog. Yeah, the, the reason why I decided to start it was because the day that I heard that the war had started, and uh, you know, I was able to, after a couple of hours to to fully grasp what was going on, I realized that, uh, you know, that there would need to be a significant military action and the military action would need to be uh, long and protracted. I thought to myself that the best thing that I could do was to try and create some form of, of a sense of resilience and, and, um, and so that people could understand, to try and encourage fortitude in people so that they could continue empathizing with Israel in what's going to be a long battle. I think that we all experienced quite a lot of sympathy that we, Israel received immediately after October 7, but that dissipated very quickly. Mm -hmm. And it's likely to carry on dissipating. Mm -hmm. And for that reason alone, I wanted to, to try and convey a message of hope and optimism um, to, you know, to Jews throughout the world. And I must admit, that's exactly what you have done. Uh, the, the one of the your first um, blog, your first me, uh, messages after the the seventh of October massacre, was called "The Penny Must Drop," and in it, you you said, you know, that you said you found yourself sitting in the same armchair, watching the same television screen, listening to the same panelists, and wondering if the periodic rounds of violence with our Gaza neighbours will ever end. The bold and the beautiful has passed the 9,000 chapter mark. We're on our way. This isn't simply another round of violence. This round is much more serious. When did you realize on the 7th of October that Israel was actually facing a huge, huge trauma that they were about to go into? I think pretty much immediately, as soon as we, we came to grips, as soon as we fully understood what was going on, we realized that, you know, that the, that the retaliation, that the steps that needed to be taken, or the military steps that needed to be taken, were going to be significant. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, that that got all of us, that it, it, in many ways, everybody was mobilized. You know, those people who were taken away, or those people who were called up to go and serve in their military units was one thing. But I think that all of us, as families and, uh, and as individuals, 
we all realized that we, you know, we had to do something because we were in the, in the midst of, or at the beginning of something which was really existentialist. We were facing a significant threat. So um, uh, I realized that, you know, pretty much at the beginning, and, uh, and I, think it, I think that that article, The Penny Must Drop, I must have written within a day or two mm-hmm. of, the, of the actual beginning of the, of the um, hostilities. And then after that, I've stuck to it, and I've I've done it every week ever since. And I, you know, I tried to touch on a whole lot of things, and mm-hmm. I tried to convey the uh, idea of what life in Israel is like at this time, all the gratitude that we get, the wonderful feeling that we had of being of being a united country and a united people, receiving support from people both locally and from abroad. It, it's been an experience. Mm, I'm quite sure it has. I just I know as a diaspora Jew, it especially a South African one, it has been a very worrying experience. At the same time, most South African Jews have got close family living in Israel, so it's that constant worry also about them and having to pull together. I think that's what I have found that the the what has helped the most in South Africa, well, for me, has been a member of a community which is a very strong community and the support of one another. What about your support system? How, how, where do you get your support from? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm now the old man in the family. Right. <laughs> so I've, got, I've, got, uh, I've got people around me and uh, I related the incident of us sitting around the table that that Friday night when we heard that Ariel had been injured. And, uh, it, you know, wh- when I looked around and I saw the way that, that each person who was present, and there must have been 15, between 15 and 20 of us around the table, everybody almost instinctively knew what they had to do. And, and, and everybody handled themselves so well. Mm. That the truth is, I mentioned earlier that I saw myself as the person who needed to provide the leadership and the guidance. But yet, I got so much support back from them when I saw how they were able to handle mm. the situation. Mm. And that, that, as I said, was really very gratifying. And how did they handle it with your younger uh, grandchildren? How did they explain to them? Well... On that same Friday night, when we, you know, we're all sitting around the table, and everybody's trying to keep the conversation away from from the from the military side, and you know, to to so as not to 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 in any way pressure or traumatize the children, the smaller children, because I've got um, grandchildren are, who are who are aged nine and eleven as uh-huh. well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, they were around the table, but but somehow they they. When all this happened, instinctively, the youngest ones, the nine-year-old and the 11-year-old, realized that, you know, there were also two great-grandchildren present in the room. Hmm. And it's as if they were able to, you know, to, to they realized that they needed to do something. Hmm. Isn't that and amazing? Way, the attention that they paid to their, you know, to the next generation in the family was something that... I mean, I'll never forget. It was it was uh, for me. For me, that was living history. I'm quite sure it must have been. You know, you and I called our program today. Um, a, a grandfather. Uh, gra- I would 
like to just change it to a grandfather's blessing because I think that's what it is. And I was reading, I don't know if you've read Rachel Naomi Renman's book, Grand, my, my Grandfather's Blessings. It's a most beautiful book and certainly worth no, a read. One of the things that she says is, there is in life a suffering so unspeakable, a, a vulnerability so extreme that it goes beyond words, beyond explanations, and even beyond suffering. It be, and beyond healing. In the face of such suffering, all we can do to bear witness is to bear witness, so no one needs suffer alone. Perhaps a willingness to face shared vulnerability. And you're nodding your head. I must admit I'm nodding my head as well because I think that's so true. It's that willingness to share the vulnerability. I met a group of, of uh, women, younger women the other day, and one of them said, I don't want to talk about the war in, in Israel. I, I just can't handle anymore. And one of the others said, well, actually, I need to talk about it. And it was quite, I, I just kept quiet as the, as the eldest in the, the oldest in this, it was actually a queue at the supermarket, I might add. And I just kept quiet and waited to see who was going to win this, <laughs> this, <laughs> this request. Yeah. Any, anyway, um, they, the one who said that she didn't want to talk about it said, well, you know what, I'll meet you for coffee afterwards and we can talk about it. And there was a relief in that. I thought, well, because I almost felt that I'd have to save them. And then I realized, actually, they were going to save themselves. I could butt out and go and put my parcels in my car. <laughs> and that's what I did. Now, why, why did you choose Israel? You, after school, you, as you say, you were at Weinberg um, High in Cape Town. You went to UCT, I should imagine. Correct, yes. And were, as, a, as a youth gr growing up, were you part of a youth movement at all? I was, uh, I was a member at one stage of uh, Habonim, but not, not for all that long. And then uh, when I got to university, I became active in the Students' Jewish Association, and I served as the chairman of the Students' Jewish Association in 67, 68, which was immediately after the Six-Day War, which was, uh, you know, th th that was a time when, when, Jewish, when Jewish identity got a huge boost mm. for uh, things that went on that weren't very different from what's happening today. And uh, so I got, I got more involved and I realized that, uh, you know, that this was a challenge. My parents had come through, they weren't, my, my dad was born in South Africa and he fought in World War II um, and he was injured and he regarded himself as a, you know, as a true South African and he was, he was really a patriotic uh, person. My mom was born in Europe and she came to South Africa at the age of 10 and, um, you know, so, so but. I never knew my grandparents. They were gone before before I was born, and um, so it, the, the whole issue of World War Two and what had happened had, a, you know, was, was always present in my life. Mm. And I realized that I wanted to. I realized that I had a responsibility here as an individual um, to be part of rebuilding and my national home after 
2,000 years of national exile, and that nobody else was going to do it instead of me. And uh, that's really what prompted me to come. I never felt that I had to leave South Africa. I felt that I wanted to come to Israel. And um, at the time, tearing myself away from, from a close family and from a large circle of friends and from the beginning of, you know, what could have been a, a successful business career, I decided that I wanted to, to move and to make my start in Israel. I got married. Fortunately, my wife thought like I did. And so we was, came at the same time. Was your wife also a Cape Townian? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. My wife was from Spain, Cape Town. And she went to Herzliya school. And uh, and then afterwards, you know, we, we came to Israel and all our children were born in Israel and the grandchildren. And, you know, we lived happily ever after. Mm. <laughs> so your children were born Israelis. Correct, yes. Mm. Do you feel that the children, well, I, I, I must admit, I do notice this myself, that they are socialized into realizing that they will be guarding their country one day, but it's not socialized into a, a harsh reality. It's not socialized into one day you'll be killing people in order to survive. It's a very different way of, of actually preparing the children. How do you see them as being prepared? Well, um, the I've got one grandson who's currently doing his basic training, and he spent uh, he spent quite a long period in Gaza. Um, he before he actually went into the army, he decided that he wants to go to a military college to prepare himself properly, and he spent a year and a half mm. in this uh, on this program, which is sort of they teach you elements of leadership, how to make decisions. Uh, they at how to prepare yourself, how to how to to build yourself up from uh, from you know mentally and and all of that, and um, and then he went into the army, and since he went into the army, he's been sort of you know that that's be, that became the center of everything that he was doing. He mm. prepared himself for it, and then when he was in the army, he's now been in the army for for a year and a half gosh and uh, or nearly two years and uh, he's you know he's sort of completely integrated into this way of life mm-hmm. he's going to he got married just very recently but he's going to you know he'll be released towards the end of this year and uh, you know he'll move on and um, but it it's I think that the, the young people over here understand that it's part, you know, it's part of their life. Mm. Nobody wants to get involved in a war. Nobody wants to kill. But uh, people realize over here that this is duty to do, and they understand the gravity of the situation and the environment in which we live. You know that we haven't, we're not exactly in the greatest neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, but people, you know, people people face that with a certain amount of resolve and determination. And I think it creates a lot of it creates a lot of positive and, and optimistic um, uh, spirit in young people. I think it it, mm. it develops leadership and uh, qualities in them, and it enables them to take responsibility when the time comes. And I think at a relatively young age, you know, it's uh, as you mentioned, relatively young age. Our, my, I have young grandchildren in Israel. And um, my husband said to me when they were out here, you know, they're just very different to the grandchildren who are in South Africa. They, um, 
let's put it this way, they don't really listen as <laughs> the grandchildren here are. They argue about absolutely everything. My husband mm-hmm. ended up buying um, a water pistol. <laughs> and every time they were not listening to the mo- their mother, which was uh, quite a few times each day, he would squirt them with the water pistol. It became a joke eventually. But <laughs> I think that I, I actually was thinking about this. And I was wondering... If the children in Israel are not given more freedom to express themselves to because you know that 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 youth is going to come to an end very quickly once they go into the army and there's a uh, responsibility. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that assessment. I think that, uh, you know, the, the children... The, the education system, you know, the, the whole atmosphere and the, the what goes on in the classroom. If I compare what I experienced as a as a pupil in South Africa with all the discipline and you know having to stand up and sit down and good morning, Miss uh, this one, or, you know, good afternoon, sir, and, and all that. Over here, they haven't got that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, the children in the primary schools i think some of the schools have got school uniforms in the high schools there's no there are no uniforms it's not like not like we experienced in in south africa uh-huh. Uh-huh. and and things and things are different and i think that over here the children are, are they're actually encouraged to to develop all their curiosities and and to talk and even to even to argue there's a way to argue and and sometimes people take it a little too far (laughs) but i think that people people learn how to how to develop their opinions and to Mm. express them and to question i mean i found that whatever i was doing i was being questioned and which i appreciate you know because i think it is one way of of actually bringing them into our world and making it less frightening uh, for them because they do question. Tell me about your friends um, out of Israel. Have you had support from friends, both Jewish and non-Jewish, in in this time? Absolutely. I matriculated in 1963. And, you know, like like you mentioned at the beginning of the program, uh, you said that around 15 or 20 percent of the school at the time was was made up of Jewish children, and uh, which conversely means that between 80 and 85 percent of the people were non-Jewish. Yeah. And um, I, I developed friendships with them at the time, but from the time I went, I left school and I went to university, and they did their own thing. Um, I actually lost contact with a lot of them. And then because of the internet and because all sorts of old boys reunions and things like that, the the uh, the connections through mainly through email had was all was all reinstated. And I must say that when the war broke out, I actually had three of them actually made a huge effort to make contact with me to find out how I was, mm. how I was coping. They take my weekly blog, they circulate it to all their friends, and I really feel that they, you know, I really feel that they're with me. They, they're mm. companions of mine, they're friends of mine. And um, the truth is that I, I miss them very much. They, they're wonderful people. And they're holding you in this time. Isn't that wonderful to know? It is, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll get back shortly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. 
only on 101.9 High FM. This is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program on 101.9 High FM. My guest today is Harris B. Green, and our topic is a grandfather's blessings. And initially it was going to be through a grandfather's eyes, so it's actually both. If you'd like to join us in this conversation, please do so on 34519 SMS or Telegram on 061-895-1019. Harris, we were talking about friends and friends who actually have started, began to reach out to you. Um, and uh, non-Jewish friends as well. I have found that in my own life and I have been very moved by it indeed. But I do also find that in South Africa, people are not that aware of what's going on. So while we as the diaspora Jews here are furious with with what's happening, with our with the NC government and taking Israel to the genocide court in ICJ, um, many other people are not actually aware of it. So it can be quite an isolating feeling, thinking, "Well, are we alone in this?" That other people are not feeling it. What did you think when you heard about South Africa? And well, first of all, I, my 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 feeling the, the outrage of the decision to uh, to place the complaint with the International Court of Justice uh, really left me flabbergasted. Uh, it, it, I found it outrageous. And um, I, 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 get the, I get the impression that, you know, that, that what's at stake over here is politics. It's not, it's, not, it's not a question of morality as to what's right and what's wrong. Um, in the blog, in preparing the blog for this week uh, and, and going through different sorts of numbers and ratios and all the way that people decide what is genocide and what isn't genocide, it's, it, it's so far from anything that's, that's even genocide related that I find this whole thing an affront. And, uh, the, and I, I really feel for, for communities abroad that are dwindling in size on the one hand I think they're becoming more and more vulnerable, and um, they. I, I think it's. Very, I think it's very difficult, and um, it. That's what causes me a lot of concern, and uh, that's basically what gives me the energy to to write every week because I'm not a trained journalist by any means. Mm. Oh, aren't you? Have you never had experience in writing before? No, no. All this. All this only began. A, that began about ten years ago. Also, thanks to the what goes on in Gaza. I think in, I think I started writing in the, in the 2012, 2013, and um, at the time, you know, you over time, one's writing abilities improve. But um, you know, I, I I take a couple of hours every week. I read on uh, a lot on the internet as to what's going on, and. Um, it, uh, the truth is that all this does is it, it frustrates me even more. Mm-hmm. It, it frustrates me that, that things that we learned as kids about what was right and what was wrong and what we learned the truth was the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And everything today has been rebranded 
And, uh, you know, the, the way that people talk, the way that, that Israel is, is accused repeatedly of being an apartheid state. I mean, it is so, anybody who lived through apartheid and anybody in Israel today, you will see absolutely no similarities whatsoever. And it's very frustrating. It's very annoying because we understood that apartheid was wrong and that it was evil. Today, we, and today when people are accusing us of being apartheid and, uh, and being colonialists and all sorts of other things, and new buzzwords are created and, and the reality is a rebrand and the, you know, the truth, all the, the ultimate things that we learned as children, everything, is, everything has been changed. The truth has no value anymore. It's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as someone who's, who's now, you know, well into his 70s and, and looks back at, at, what, at what's happened, and you see this transition as it's happened, it's, uh, I, I find it shocking. My father, who, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, injured in World War II. He was convinced all the years that the Second World War was the last major war and the last war had already been fought. It would never happen again. Mm. My parents believed that anti-Semitism, as people experienced it in the 30s and the 40s of the previous century, they thought it was all gone. It hasn't gone. It's come back. Mm. And things that, that were once um, politically incorrect have now become trendy. Mm. And people have absolutely no fear whatsoever in making anti-Semitic uh, comments and acting in, in anti-Semitic ways. And, um, you know, during, during my, my professional career, I was fortunate that I was able to travel a good deal to different places around the world. And I never felt intimidated anywhere. Now, the, the, I haven't traveled abroad now for a couple of years, but uh, frankly, I, I wouldn't feel too confident about going to too many places mm -hmm. because I really feel now that, you know, I'm, I'm just not wanted. Absolutely. Um, made an outpost. Mm. I have to agree with you, and certainly uh, lone soldiers from around the world uh, especially because of South Africa, are, are actually being targeted as well, which is just too shocking. Yeah. You know, um, with as far as anti-Semitism anti is concerned, uh, when, I asked, when I told my father I was going to convert to Judaism, we'd been married about 10 years at that stage, and we had children. And my father, who had, was in the Second World War, and I've told the story before, he was um, a squadron leader in the RAF and Bomber Command, and he had to. He went through Bergen-Belsen. So when I told him that I was going to convert, he gave me his blessing, but he did say, "You must just be aware that one day your children will face anti-Semitism." And and now, I mean, look at this. It, his words are, are truth, unfortunately, and I see my grandchildren, my children, as the older generation, we're all facing anti-Semitism now. Indeed we are. Mm. And it's very frightening. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. 
Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program on 101.9 Chai FM. My guest today is Harris Speed Green, and we have been talking about many issues. We were just talking about South Africa, but I wanted to change that now into something different. I think it was the 12th of January, your blog on the 12th of January, Harris, that you said that the IDF what they stand for and you quoted J.K. Chesterton and you said a true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him but because he loves what's behind him and that is so relevant today I don't I don't think that our our soldiers our IDF ever go into battles thinking who can we kill today they have a very different mindset. Do you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. The uh, I, I, I think that the, as one who went through the IDF himself, the, and the, there's a lot of public debate about the orders regarding you know, when you can open fire and when you can't open fire and things like that. And then there are also all the moral and ethical questions that people face when they find themselves in danger exactly what you can do and what you can't do Mm -hmm. and what you can do as a country. And one of the problems that we have is that very often issues, uh, security issues can be dealt with a lot more effectively from the air. But the ground troops are sent in in order to minimize or even to avoid as far as possible the loss of human life or for innocent and uninvolved people. Over here, but at the same time, our soldiers are put at risk, and so there are these conflicts, there are these moral dilemmas that, that you know that our officers need to, con- you know, and they need to make decisions on the spot. They can't refer the question to you know to some meeting and and, mm-hmm. and of, of of experts who sit down and weigh up all the, the pluses and the minuses. It's a serious problem, and. Uh, But that's very much the case. I think that Chesterton's uh, summary very much sums up uh, exactly the dilemmas that that we face. And it it also, I I mentioned that my one grandson had gone to a military college. Those are the things that they learned there. Mm, The values Um, of, the 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 values. Mm. Exactly. And the horrors of war is what they Absolutely. Learned. And you know that uh, Colonel Kemp, who's really uh, amazing, uh, a British, the British colonel who talks often lately, I really admire him for doing so, about the IDF. And he says that uh, the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, is the most moral army in the world. He said no other army ever drops pamphlets, drops... Um, uh, pieces of paper warning people that they're about to be uh, uh, strapped with with, uh, airplanes uh, dropping anything. They actually drop first warnings, which puts, as you say, our own troops at great, great risk. Now, on a happier note, your grandson Omer's wedding. That must be yeah. I want to hear about that because it must be quite strange. One thing that I've noticed because I'm 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 a part of many many different um, uh, groups checking on news all the time on for Israel on Israel, 
And so many of them, especially the one which is the positivity group, shows the the idea of dancing and singing and praying and putting on to feeling and, you know, just caring for one another, which is wonderful to see. But um, so tell me about this this wedding, because this was in the middle of war. Yeah, correct. Well, first of all, Omer was supposed to get married at, on November 30th. Right. But at that time, he was in the middle of Gaza, and although the army would have released him to get married and it would have given him a couple of days, um, he decided that he was going to that, that there were more important things. It was more important for him to be with his with his colleagues, with his fellow soldiers, and so they decided to push the wedding off for six weeks. And ultimately, he got married on uh, on uh, January 11th. Now. He was the one thing that he wanted that he was talking all the time. He said that he really wanted his fellow soldiers, those who served in the troop carrier together with him, to be present. They, uh, but they were they were all occupied at the time, so they couldn't. You know, they, he, as far as he knew, they couldn't get out. Right. Now, what happened is, first of all, that under the chuppah, when uh, just before Omer was asked to break the glass. He asked the rabbi to stop the ceremony, and he said, I want to, in addition to, to breaking the, that the, we should remember when I break the glass, we're not only remembering the destruction of the temple, but we're also remembering the, um, the, all the people who've given their lives to defend Israel. Mm. And then uh, there wasn't a dry eye left in the house. And then a little later, when we were into the, into the meal, following the wedding, all of a sudden, 10, 11 soldiers came in in full military dress. The army had taken them from Gaza. They, they brought their vehicle out to be serviced. And the army laid on a minibus to bring them to the, to the, to the wedding. Aww. They celebrated with him for two or three hours, and then they, they went back into Gaza. Oh, and oh how wonderful. It, it was unbelievable. It was something that none of us will ever forget. And I think the most important thing was my daughter then put on our family WhatsApp group that, that in considering whether we won this war, we haven't won this war, how we won this war, we haven't won this war, her conclusion was that when she experienced what she experienced, that we have won the war. Wow. Because the enemies were unable to break our spirits. Mm. And um, that was that was very special. How wonderful. I'm being told to wrap up. And um, I just wanted to quote Albert Einstein. The world is a dangerous place to live, not because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who don't do anything about it. I think That's we right. all need to see that. And... What a wonderful story to end on, actually, Harris. And I know your father wrote a diary in the, in his exper- on his experiences, so you and I are going to be together again to discuss that. But right now, I'm being told to wrap up very quickly. You're going to be hearing Shulam uh, singing um, Bring Them Home. It won't come through on the podcast, but you can look it up yourselves on the music. Thank you so much for being with me, Harris. Take care. Keep safe and please God your family will be safe and Israel will be on the top of the world soon.